So I think having clarity around what kind of product when it comes to ingredients and nutritional profile I want to make. And the second thing was also what kind of suppliers I want to work with, right? So I think as business owners, especially in the food industry, we have an opportunity to satisfy more than a food craving. So it was, how can I bring in this background of human rights into the business space? So I want to work directly with farmers. When I did immigration law, several of my clients were farmers Mm -hmm. that were forced to leave their home countries as a result of farming predatory practices, where the farmer, sadly, ends up being the one getting the least. And I wanted to work directly with the farmers. I wanted to work also with companies where women were in leadership positions, because the only way we're going to you know, have more space is by being and showing up in this space and creating our own tables mm-hmm. and working with each other. So I was very intentional about finding those kinds of businesses. You're listening to Foreign Founders, where we tell stories of immigrant and international founders who are working tirelessly to shape the future. We share stories of their upbringing, culture, and background, and explore the companies and products they're building. We want to highlight these founders because these are stories that are often not told. Thank you for joining us. Our episode today is about delicious snacks. I'm really excited to have a founder and CEO of Nemi Snacks, Regina Trillo. She's originally from Mexico City and now based in Chicago. Regina felt unrepresented the moment she stepped foot in Chicago grocery stores. Regina found brands portraying Mexican cultura in a stereotypical way and mostly using artificial ingredients. Nemi Snacks was founded with a mission to elevate Mexican cultura in the U.S. through high-quality Mexican snacks in a sombrero-free branding. That's an awesome tagline, Regina. Nemi Snacks are crunchy sticks made from seeds and nopales in Mexican-inspired flavors like Mexican lime, smoky chipotle, chili turmeric, and churro. Nemi Snacks work directly with Mexican farmers, and they use real chilies and spices and no artificial colors or ingredients. Regina has spent her legal career advocating for human rights by providing legal services to immigrants and implementing programs on a range of global human rights issues in Latin America and the Caribbean, Africa, and the United States. Thank you so much for joining the show, Regina. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited to explore Nemi Snacks and your background. So let's start with your background. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? I was born in Wilmington, Delaware, which is surprising for some people. My parents lived there at the time. My dad was in school, so I was born there, but I didn't really grow up in the U.S. I grew up in Mexico City. We moved back. My parents were Mexican when I was about one. So I grew up in Mexico. My first language is Spanish, and I grew up in a very typical Mexican family where so much revolves around food and about flavors and about color, and it was a very, I had a very happy childhood. I have an older sister, a younger brother, and and I have very good and fond memories of my childhood and always a lot of things happen in the kitchen. My mom loves to cook. Everyone on my mom's side of the family, they like to cook. 
And at home, it was important for my mom to teach us how to cook. So since we were young, I started cooking and we had our own little utensils, like non-sharp knives and things like that. So we had to learn how to cook. That wasn't an option. What, but she gave us the option to choose what we wanted to cook. And I always went for the savory. My sister went for the sweet. My brother was more like a little bit of everything or like appetizers or, oh, I'll just carry the soda or I'll just carry the bottle of waters or whatever. But I always went for the savory. I don't really have a sweet tooth. So it was just about, you know, we were making breakfast and we were already thinking about what's for lunch and what's for dinner <laughs> and the places we want to go and what's fresh in the mercado and what are we going to make with all these fresh ingredients. And I was fortunate to grow up in a place where a lot of things were fresh. So we had the opportunity, you know, in Mexico, the climate is amazing. Mm -hmm. Winters are non-existent compared to how winters are here in Chicago, where I'm based. But my mom's backyard had a lime tree and an orange tree and a pear tree. So it was just easy to go outside and get the limes for the day or go mm -hmm. outside and get herbs or get tomatoes or that was something that was normal at home. Or go to the mercado, no? And go el mercado y get whatever you were going to make for that day or for that week to the seafood market. The butcher, they know you by name. The milk used to go at home and leave milk every week and eggs, right? So it was a very... It was an upbringing that was connected with nature in a way and how, you know, where food is intended to come from and how we should be nurturing and, and treating our body. So I really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I grew up there until I was 27. At 27 years old, I moved here to Chicago and I've been here for the past 12 years. Yeah. And so food was really the centerpiece, essentially. Food and family was like the centerpiece of the home. Can you describe your favorite food that your mom made? <gasps> There's so many, but I really liked her sauces, her salsas, like just very simple salsas, eh, cilantro and jalapeño or chipotle salsa. Actually, the chipotle salsa is kind of the inspiration for one of the flavors for Nemi snacks and we can talk about later on, but I love her salsas. She's a very good cook and she knows how to do savory and sweet. Yeah. I didn't get that talent. I stick to the savory side. I have no business... <laughs> with baking or anything sweet. But I really like this dish that she makes and it's called pulpos en su tinta. And it's octopus cooked with its ink and like a tomato stew. And you just have it with white Mexican rice on the side. And I loved it. And cochinita pibil, every year for my birthday... I would ask for cochinita pibil, which is traditionally a Mexican dish from Yucatan, from Merida, from the Yucatan Peninsula. And it's slow-cooked pork in an achote broth. So the achote comes from the anato. And a lot of spices and vinegar and bitter orange and pickled onion and habanero. It's delicious. So every year, and I remember I told my mom when I was young, if I ever get married, that's going to be my wedding menu. Cochinita pibil. That has to be what we eat. I didn't, well, there was cochinita pibil at my wedding, though. Not as the main, but there was cochinita pibil. But those two were my favorite. And my mom knew. So it was just a happy moment of the smell. Like, even when you start cooking it, because it takes hours to cook, and the house smelled like yeah. Mexican flavors and spices. So I loved it. I love everything she makes, and she knows that. And I make sure that she knows that every time she makes something for me. Yeah, I'm like really hungry right now after hearing all that that sounds incredible i know <laughs> now i want a taco a cochinita taco yeah. right after this probably <laughs> hold up feeling hungry regina wants to give 15 percent off to all the listeners with the code form founders on her site nemi.native.com you can go to the site add delicious nemi snacks to your cart and click proceed to purchase where you can add that discount code once again the discount code is Forum Founders, one word, and the website is n 
E M I N A T I V E dot com. Thanks, Regina. Back to the show. So you were living in Mexico City until twenty、mm-hmm. seven, and、yeah. then what brought you to Chicago? Law school. Law There school. was a human rights law program here in Chicago that I really wanted to do. So I applied to different schools for a master's, and then I got in. So I came to Chicago. I've been here before, but I didn't know that it was that it was a city with so much Latin culture. I didn't know、mm-hmm. that until I moved here. So I came, you know, with a suitcase and not knowing everyone, but being okay with that because I knew that I was just going to meet people along the way. No idea or thinking about starting a business back then. In my mind, I was set on about being an attorney and thinking that that was the only way or the only career to create any change that I wanted to see. I knew early on that I wanted to do human rights work, and、mm-hmm. that's why I went to law school. So this human rights program was perfect to build on that career choice, and it was great. I loved it. It was my first time experiencing winter, as Chicago winters can go. Even though people say that that was the mildest. Winter, but I was okay with it. You know, even though there's no snow in Mexico, it's only snowed once, I think, in 1985, and there's just you know, in Mexico, there's no heat. Houses don't even have heat. You know, it's it just、mm-hmm. never gets. I mean, now it's changing, but it's very mild compared to here. And I really liked it. And when I first moved here, I thought, you know, I've heard that there are a lot of Mexican products here and Mexican restaurants, and there's a big Latin community. So I'm just gonna go to the store and I'm gonna get all these things that I get in Mexico, and I'm gonna cook at home. I knew how to cook, and I love to cook. Well, I I love to eat, and there's a space between. You have to cook if you want to eat well. So. There's a、uh, whole process. Exactly, and I went to the <laughs> store, and this was a an American store. It wasn't even a, a Mexican or Hispanic store. And I remember going into the so-called ethnic aisle and feeling unrepresented, seeing a version of Mexico that I I've never seen, that I didn't know. A lot of brands that were showcasing Mexico in a very stereotypical way. So sombreros on the packaging, indigenous women cooking in front of the packaging. There was even a guy that had like a bullet. Vest and on the packaging, and I was, you know, I remember seeing these from Speedy Gonzalez or, you know, things that were old, that were kind of an old version, outdated, even to some extent offensive version of Mexico. And then looking at all the ingredients that these brands were using, most of them were artificial, and it was kind of the same. If you looked at the snack options, like Hispanic snack options, everything was tortilla chips, and there was, you know, at the time only maybe two kinds of tortillas or one kind of tortilla. So I felt unrepresented and thinking. This is just not Mexico. This is not the Mexico when it comes to colorful, vibrancy flavors, right? Like you don't need a ton of artificial flavors or red forty to make it look a certain way or to make it taste a certain way. When we have so rich diversity of chiles and spices and different flavors, and then I went to the produce section and I saw nopales, and I first saw it from a distance. And I got really excited. Nopales—it's the prickly pear cactus. It's a staple crop in Mexico. It grows pretty much anywhere, as in it grows in southern Texas, southern California, Arizona, and you find it in every mercado. It's one of the most sustainable plants because it thrives in hot weather. It doesn't need much water to survive. It doesn't need pesticides. That's why it, you know making it one of the most sustainable plants. And everything in the plant is used. So we use the paddle. We use the fruit that grows on top, which is a prickly pear. And even、mm-hmm. sometimes some paddles develop a parasite called、uh, cochinilla. 
and the cochinilla is used to make dyes for textiles. So everything in that plant is used. And because of that, it has a cultural significance to Mexico. It's in our Mexican flag and it represents resilience because it's going to stand the test of time through the harshest weather conditions. It's going to thrive. So I got so excited when I saw it. And as I was about to grab it, I noticed that it had spikes and I thought nobody's going to buy this intimidating looking vegetable unless the consumer knows how to clean it, how to cook it. And when you look at it and you see a spiky looking vegetable and maybe you see that it's slimy inside and it's a little bit bitter, that's not attractive in any way, I think. No? So I left the store just knowing that that was going to go to waste, feeling mm -hmm. unrepresented. And at the time, I also developed a health condition called endometriosis. Are you familiar with endometriosis? I'm not. So I'll pronounce it the American way. It's endometriosis. No? So the uterus has endometrial cells inside. And then somehow those cells leave the uterus and start growing outside the uterus. So it starts kind of invading. It's tissue that forms coming from the endometrio, the endometrium, and it starts growing outside. And it's painful depending on what part, you know, it's kind of invading. Long story short, it's a silent disease because it doesn't show up in scans. It's not inside the uterus. You can't see it with exams or anything, but it's painful depending on where it is. So it usually takes between seven to nine years to diagnose. And at the time I was undiagnosed, but I could only do anti-inflammatory diets. And I remember not finding snacks that didn't cause inflammation. So it was kind of all these three things that just came into alignment at that moment. But at the mm -hmm. time, I didn't start the business because I didn't come from a business background. I didn't have any consumer packaged goods background or even food background. I mean, other than being a consumer that loves food, yeah. but I didn't have any like formal training in business. So I mainly thought that I wasn't capable of starting a business. So I kept on my legal career, which I liked. You know, a lot of people say, oh, no wonder why you left law. That wasn't yeah. my case. I loved what I did. I loved working at nonprofits. I loved doing immigration law. When I came to Chicago, I thought I'll stay as long as I can find a job that somehow keeps me connected with Mexico and with Latin mm -hmm. culture. And I did that. I, I, I've done that all along since I've been here. So yeah, I kept on my legal career. And then it was five no, six years ago that at first I thought, well, what if I do something about this? All these three different things, the prickly pear, having so much potential, but being presented in a very, in a non-attractive way. Yeah. And just this, all these brands that are rooted in stereotypes and that are, you know, their packaging is not really well done, artificial ingredients, and just creating something that's better for you that's mostly made with really, well, not mostly, the snack is only made with real ingredients, but yeah. like non-anti-inflammatory ingredients. Yeah. So that's when I found a food and beverage incubator in Chicago. And I joined and they had a class called How to Start a Food Business 101. How'd you and find the incubator? And what was it called? It's called The Hatchery. And the, I'm still part of the incubator. And they're amazing because it's a nonprofit that provides provides a lot of services and help to food and beverage businesses in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And at the time, they were smaller than what they are right now. So now they have a shared kitchen space and you can go there and manufacture. And even I'm at the warehouse now and I rent the warehouse from a sister company from the hatchery. So they're very intentional about helping emerging brands and everything that that entails. So, you know, a lot of people say, oh yeah, you know, I mean, thinking about women or Latin mm -hmm. businesses, women can do everything. Yes, but we need to know how. So the hatchery has been a really good space to get knowledge, get information, connections, learn about everything about having a business. How does mm -hmm. retail work? I mean, I also did some other like courses on how to get into retail, what do you need to have and operations, finance, et cetera. But I think that was really my starting point into the food industry. And of course, coming in with no knowledge about it, it didn't look that complicated for that 
first class. And I was like, ah, I can do this, you know, from, yeah. from what it seems, I can do this. And it started, everything was DIY. I thought, okay, I have the mission of the company. Mm-hmm. I know that I want to elevate Mexican cultura through a high quality, better for you product with sombrero free branding. Mm-hmm. I know that's how I want to do it. I didn't have a product. So I just went back to Mexico and looked at all these different options. And the format that we make, the, the Nemi sticks, we call them churritos, which are okay. sticks. I couldn't really say we make churro because churro here people associate with like a Mexican churro that is, you know, the flour, yeah. the fried flour dusted in cinnamon and sugar. Yeah. And churrito is also a marijuana joint. So I just couldn't say <laughs> we make churritos. So, you know, I'll, we'll just make nemi snacks, nemi sticks and yeah. use Mexican ingredients. So I just went to Mexico and started testing in my mom's kitchen, in my kitchen. I started meeting with farmers. And before you get there. Yeah. The form factor of your snack, the nemi sticks. How did you come up with that as a snack, like a popular snack in Mexico? It is a very popular snack in Mexico City. Okay. If you go to Mexico City, where I'm from, you're going to find churritos on the street. You're going to find street carts that have fried potato chips, fried chicharrones, and fried churritos. And there's this, these are, you know, they're sticks that are, yeah. it's either masa, so corn flour, fried in oil with salt mm-hmm. or wheat flour fried in oil with salt and you usually mm-hmm. douse them in hot sauce and lime and, and more salt mm-hmm. because the saltier the better <laughs> but <laughs> it's a very common snack in mexico so yeah. i just wanted to create the healthy version of that mm-hmm. and that's how i started doing it and it was an easy format to make in mexico at the time also you know as a starting from zero with no outside investment i thought I don't want to create tortilla chips because I'm going to be competing with giants here with mm-hmm. tortilla chips. And that's a saturated category. There's so many different varieties. So I don't want to go there. Potato chips at the time, you know, I had like this anti-inflammatory thing and I thought it, it's the same thing. No, I feel like I'm going to be just going. It's a huge category and it's also saturated. And I think every yeah. category has its complexities, right? Like every time you're going to tell, oh, you're not going to start a business in the fashion. Oh, it's so hard. Tech. Oh, it's so hard. I mean, yeah. everything has its complexities. Yeah. And I thought, I'm going to do a churrito that Mexicans know, people that visit Mexico and see it, like first generation, second, they know. And that's how it started pretty much. And that's why I chose that format because it was, I could find co-packers. So co-packer is a person that manufactures a product for you that could make it in Mexico. And with that, how did you know what to, so you found churritos, went to Mexico City, and then you met with farmers. Yes. How do you pick the ingredients that go into it? How do you pick the, you know, the producers, all mm-hmm. these details that we sometimes don't even see when we're like, oh, there's a product on the shelf. It just like showed up there, but there's a lot of steps that go into it. Yeah. How do you know what to do with each of the steps? Yes. Even though I didn't know a lot of things at the time, I knew two things. The first one was I knew that I didn't want the product to have any artificial ingredients, any artificial colors, even not even natural flavors. So I knew kind of the nutritional profile of the product. And I actually started experimenting at home. So mm-hmm. making a dough, mixing it, making a very, not very, you know, visually attractive churrito with like just rolling the dough, putting it in the oven, frying it, just making it a different ways and getting a sense of flavor. Mm-hmm. And the same with the seasonings. I just started blending different chiles and spices and kind of coming up with the flavor profile that I was looking for. Mm-hmm. So then I went to a fair in Mexico City that happens every year, that it's the Amaranth Fair. So Amaranth, it's a pseudo grain. It's native to Mexico and it's a very common grain in Mexico and surrounding in Mexico City and surrounding states. 
-hmm. and it's high in protein. It has the complete amino acid profile, high in protein, high in fiber. So I was just getting kind of the ingredients together saying, you know, the average potato chip, tortilla chip has one gram of protein, two grams of fiber. How can I make something that's nutritionally dense, mm -hmm. that tastes really good, and that has the texture that we look for in chips, which is the crunch factor. Mm -hmm. And I went to this fair. It was February, I remember. And then I started stopping at every stand, talking to the vendors, asking about who the farmers they worked with. And then it was all conversational. And then one of them, you know, everyone was very helpful in saying, maybe, you know, I can't help you, but I know someone who may. Why don't you reach out to this person? And that's how it all started. Just literally going stand by stand at a market, mm -hmm. asking about who packed this for you? you know, who made your seasonings. And then it took about seven months between that day to finding the suppliers that I wanted to work with. So I think having clarity around what kind of product when it comes to ingredients and nutritional profile I want to make. Yeah. And the second thing was also what kind of suppliers I want to work with, right? So I think as business owners, especially in the food industry, we have an opportunity to satisfy more than a food craving. So it was, how can I bring in this background of human rights into the business space? So I went to work directly with farmers. When I did immigration law, several of my clients were farmers mm -hmm. that were forced to leave their home countries as a result of farming predatory practices, where mm -hmm. the farmer, sadly, ends up being the one getting the least. And I wanted to work directly with the farmers. I wanted to work also with companies where women were in leadership positions because the only way we're gonna you know have more space is by being and showing up in this space and creating our own tables mm -hmm. and working with each other so i was very intentional about finding those kinds of businesses and there were some that were not interested getting the seasoning suppliers was hard because a lot of them told me wait but do you want a seasoning that's made of chiles that is not gonna paint your tongue red <laughs> I'm like yes But your fingers, they're not going to be red. I'm like, yes, I don't want that. <laughs> they're like, yeah, that's not going to sell. I'll take care of that. That's my problem. That's, you know, just let me know. We can work together with this. Because also, I was asking for the minimum of the minimum at the time. So I was also, yeah. you know, this business coming in asking for a totally different formula, even the flavor enhancers. Like, it was unbelievable the amount of artificial stuff. Some of it that you were not even legally required to declare on your packaging. Hmm. And I didn't want that. I wanted every every ingredient to be on my packaging for transparency purposes. So hmm. I ended up finding companies that were willing to do seasonings without flavor enhancers, without artificial colors, without anything that doesn't come from the earth. Yeah. And that's how I started. DIY packaging, DIY website. My sister helped me with my packaging on PowerPoint and Adobe Illustrator because she's a graphic design, no, textile designer. And she mm -hmm. had access to these programs. And for, I, I didn't. I had no idea. No, And Canva didn't exist at the time. Yeah. Or did it? But I didn't know. How, I don't know. No, Canva existed at the time. It was probably not that popular at that time. It wasn't that popular. Yes. So yeah. I knew that I had an imperfect product and an mm -hmm. imperfect branding. But I just wanted to get the product out there to start connecting with who I thought was going to be my consumer, buyers, stores, see what worked, see what didn't. And just take it from there. And, yeah. you know, when I say launching with an imperfect product, it was difficult because I wanted something that maybe looked different at the time, but I just wanted to get out there. And of course, I was afraid too, because I was learning everything as I was going. And I still do, even though I'm four years in, I'm still learning so many new and amazing different things. But that's how I started. I just launched and thought, 
let's see how we can do this and let's see, get some yeah. data and take it from here. That's such an incredibly mature way to launch because I know a lot of oh, thank founders you. that we both met who are perfectionists, right? Yeah. So what was your philosophy around being like, you know, this? I know in my mind that it's going to get better, but let's launch now to get the signal from the market. Like what was your thought process there in doing so? I, I, you know, it was, it was just doing it. It was just knowing that the fear that I was feeling wasn't going to go away. It was just a matter of working with that. And it still is. You start realizing that with entrepreneurship, the challenges never go. They just change. Mm -hmm. And that feeling of fear that we feel, it changes too. And you learn how to work with it. Mm -hmm. And it's a partnership. And it gives and takes, right? And it's a constant, you just ride the wave. And I think since early on, thanks to connecting with other members of, you know, in the community and other founders, I would just reach out and ask questions and, you know, how did you do it? And where should I start? And I enrolled in a course called Retail Ready with Ali Ball, and she was amazing. And I went to the hatchery and asked so many questions all the time. And I kept seeing that a lot of founders started very simple quote unquote, compared to where they were at that moment. Mm -hmm. So that gave me more confidence yeah. about just starting, just starting yeah. and yeah, and just launching and yeah. taking it from there. It's the, it's the launch, it's the self-belief, but it's also the network of support and seeing how other people did it and saying, yeah, getting out there and then learning from that. So you talked about basically your journey from saying, you know, walking into that grocery store in the ethnic aisle for the first time, all the way to working with your sister, to the packaging and releasing the product. Can you tell us a little bit more about who tried Nemi Snacks the first couple of times, like the reaction from the customers? I would love to hear that. Yeah. So I first, I did focus groups. So this was just getting together friends and whoever said yes and sharing the snack with them. And I had six flavors at the time. And at the time I thought I would only start with three. So I gave them six. And of course, one was like fuego habanero and nobody could eat it. And another one, you know, a lot of them just didn't work. But that's how I started. And I just started making notes. And this was a very, it was a very simple approach. Just I was taking note of everything. And I was the creep that was in stores, like just staring at customers and seeing like if they would take my packaging, how long, what were they doing? I did a lot of demos. I wanted to do demos to get that experience with a consumer and I sent samples for free to some people saying like can you try them can I send you the survey and ask you 10 questions because I'm really interested in knowing your thoughts and that became my real estate my data I got into email marketing right at the beginning which also helped to get that connection with my consumer and that communication and I remember going to the first store and feel, you know, even the communication of it. Like, I just remember at the beginning, my first pitch, my first sale, that kind of first encounter of feeling this hole in my stomach. But I knew that I had to practice. I had to start somewhere. Like, I knew that my first pitch was terrible. I knew that I didn't know a lot of the things that you're supposed to know when you're pitching. But I needed the experience. So I think it's that constant showing up. And of course, you know, I mean, in generally, I'm a very passionate and intense person naturally. And I have a lot of stamina from my parents. Both of them are very energetic people. And that helped a lot. But even I remember at the beginning, I would say, you know, it would be like, no, you can't have a 10 minute pitch to describe your company. Like it needs to be significantly more simple than that. So 
Mm-hmm. That was the training that I knew I needed. So it was also, you know, I know where I'm coming from a space where I want to learn. And mm-hmm. the only way that I'm going to do it is just by test and trial and getting data from that and making it better and doing it better. Mm-hmm. So getting the data from your customers, doing taking yeah. notes, uh, you said stalking mm-hmm. people who are like at the aisle looking at it. Where is Nemi Snacks available today? And what are the most popular flavors around the snacks? Yes. So we're available in about 300 stores, mostly in Texas, California, the East Coast and the Midwest. And online, we're about half and half wholesale and half direct to consumer for sales. And we now have four flavors. So I started with three, savory. Then I did a seasonal, which is a churro flavor in 2020. And it did really well. So it became the fourth flavor and the only sweet flavor that we have right now. And I still have one presentation, which is a small single serve bag. And we're launching a new flavor next year too. But everything that we've done with the business has been very intentional. So I'm still stiletto strapped. We don't have any outside investment. I don't have any debt yet. And really our growth has been the result of having good margins and grants from mm-hmm. foundations, private entities, some that are public too. So that's really been the way that we've grown. And a lot of, you know, word of mouth and a lot of organic just organic marketing and and working with influencers organically that are excited about the product, that really like the product, and they just shared with their community. Yeah. And again, that really became our real estate. And that has been an amazing opportunity and, and that opportunity of getting that connection. We still self-distribute from our warehouse here in Chicago because mm-hmm. we have the single serve bag. If you go into the grocery store and you go at the snack aisle, you're going to see mostly bigger bags. Like yeah, family huge sometimes. Exactly. Huge sometimes. So we're not there yet. Well, we'll be there, but there's still a lot of opportunity to do with the smaller bags. So for example, in grocery stores, we're at the checkout lane where, you know, we're in these places where being single serve works really well. So yeah. we've been able also to get into juice bars and coffee shops and places where I know my consumer already is. Right. Like just thinking about how can I make the most with the marketing that I have, which is mostly word of mouth. And how can I meet my consumer where they're at? Because at the moment, I don't have, you know, the investment to go and chase them or go and get your, you know, get your eyes into my website for SEO. Like my SEO is different. We're not doing ads yet. So that it's all been very intentional. And I think the biggest lesson there for me, which took me some time to figure it out, was that there's not just one way of doing business. There are different paths that you can take and there are different growth paths. And you decide how fast you want to grow your business and how much capital you need for that. When you don't fundraise, I think you're sacrificing speed of growth. And it's Mm -hmm. just a very personal decision of depending how you want to do it, how you want to grow your business. And that's how we've been doing it. We've really been growing the business our own way in a way that makes sense for us financially, where we don't really lose money. And that's that's been profitable for us. Yeah, like you said earlier, a lot of the decisions are deliberately made. And one of the things is the capitalization and how you run. You said, who's on the Nemi Snacks team? Because it started out just with you. Yes. So now there's a fulfillment manager here at the warehouse that does all shipments for direct-to-consumer and wholesale. There's someone who helps with operations in Mexico, the community manager, and somebody helping us with sales in Texas, California, Arizona, and myself. Amazing. With a lot of food, entrepreneurs trying to build food and 
beverage businesses. What is your advice to them now that you've, you know, it's been a couple of years, you've basically built Nemi Snacks to where it is today. The growth is incredible. 300 stores, basically nationwide. What is your advice to them who wants to create food and bev? It's a very competitive space as many other spaces. It's challenging. It's an expensive space. It requires a lot. So I think it would be two things. One, doing the research that it takes not only as a business owner, as a product, but also personally. A lot of entrepreneurship is about personal growth and it's mm -hmm. just going to open you in a very raw and vulnerable way. And a lot of, you know, everything is going to come out, the good, the bad, the things that you had under the rug that you put in there 25 years ago, it's going to come out and it's okay. It's part of the growth process too. But having, taking the time to do that research so that you can have clarity around you know, what's your business? What are you doing? Where do you want to go? And then the second thing is, and if it's just, you know, one thing at the initial is as much as you can, understanding the cost structure that you need to have. I think one of the big mistakes is you start at a certain price point. And even though you can get better and with volume, you can do some things and renegotiate and a lot, there's a lot of alternatives. But at the beginning, starting with a very healthy margin. Mm -hmm. Because as you grow, you're going to get a lot of cuts, mm -hmm. a lot of marketing, a lot, you know, trade spend, the team getting big, a lot of things start going to add up into that and going to eat the cost. So having an understanding of having a very healthy cost structure that is going to put you in a good position for growth. That mm -hmm. was, I think if I had not had that, I don't know if I would be here without funding, without mm -hmm. fundraising. Mm -hmm. Those decisions basically gave you more control on the future of Nanny Snacks. Yeah, more opportunity. And I think now, even more so now than before, I'm not saying that it wasn't important before, but now branding is, is so important, right? Like get really understanding how you're communicating with your consumer. And it's a constant and it's always evolving and it's always changing and there's always more things to figure out and improve and learn. But investing in branding, it took me a year and a half to do that. It took me a year and a half to get all the data that I wanted to jump from my first packaging, which looks totally different from what it is right now. It was mid-2021 when I did it, but just decide what's worth investing in, what's not. And I think branding is worth investing in. Yeah, I think we can cover a lot more things, but are you ready for the last couple of questions, Regina? Yeah, of course. What does it mean to you to elevate Mexican cultura? Yes. So to me, that means pushing back against this stereotype that if it's Mexican or if it's Latino or even if it's ethnic, it's low quality or it's cheaply made or it's unhealthy. Right. Like I think sometimes we have this conception that with Mexican food, the torta, the enchilada, the fried quesadilla, the greasy, which is I love it. And yes, it's 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 part of it. But there are so many other options. So it's really elevating and providing that improved modern version of Mexico, which is the Mexico that I know. And there is a market for, you know, brands that are not doing that and are doing it a different way. There's a market for that too. But that's what it means for me to be elevating Mexican culture and really celebrating and owning and being proud of our heritage and sharing that with other people. Because really, I truly believe that it's really those differences that become our unique gift. What are you optimistic about? A lot of things. I'm an eternal optimist. And that's a family thing. And I don't know if even that's a Mexican thing, right? I think we're always thinking of how can we do it differently outside the box? Well, oh, you know, the typical, that's not possible or that's just the way it is. We're more curious than that. I'm trying to figure it out in different ways, but I'm optimistic about 
the future of NEMI since I just transitioned from my full-time job that I left in June, but really at the end of September. Now that I'm full-time in NEMI, so I'm very optimistic about what's coming and everything. Now that I have time to strategize and organize differently and restructure and just do it better and really, you know, I feel like I'm in day number one mm-hmm. and I'm just starting the business. So I'm very, very optimistic about all the opportunities and possibilities that come from that. Yeah. Congratulations on going full-time. That's a huge milestone. It is. It is. Yeah. Thank you. I'm excited. Yes. You know, and I love it that you're saying it feels like day one. feels yes. like that perspective really puts like a different set of energy into mm. the product and company that you're building. Um, 100%. For those who listened to this episode and heard about your amazing story and want to go buy and taste Nemi snacks, how can they do that? Go online, www.neminative.com and buy there. I'm happy to share a discount code with you that you can share with your community to get 20% off. But also, if you live in a place where you want to see Nemi in your store, there's a contact section on our website. Let us know where you want to see Nemi and we're going to reach out to the stores. Amazing. And for any sort of, you know, founders who heard your story and really want to reach out to you or even immigrant founders who want to do the same, how can they do that? What is the best place for them to reach out? Different ways. You can DM me on my Instagram. I will respond. Send me an email to hola. H-O-L-A at NemiNative.com or send a message from the website. Even though I'm a solo founder, there's nothing about Nemi that has been self-made. It's really been as a result of the support that I've gotten from other founders, from incubators, from accelerators, like the Target, DoorDash Accelerator, grants. You know, my family, it takes a village in everything that we do. So I've received a lot of support and help, and I'm happy to help out the best way I can for anyone who's in the same world. Incredible. Thank you so much, Regina, for joining the show, sharing more about Nemi Snacks and your story. I can't wait to try it and taste it. Muchas gracias for your space. I really appreciate talking to you and helping us amplify our brand and our message. So thank you so much. Of course. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this valuable, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast app. One more thing, Foreign Founders is a new podcast, so please consider leaving a rating or review. That helps more people find the show. See you on the next episode.